Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Therefore, I have determined that it is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. While previous presidents have made this a major campaign promise, they failed to deliver. Today, I am delivering. Team, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Buck Sexton here. That was President Trump shaking things up a bit when it comes to the uh, Mideast, the status quo. He has decided to do what previous presidents should have done he has put in motion events that will uh, lead to the u.s embassy going from tel aviv to jerusalem currently jerusalem has a consulate we talked about this a bit last night with our friend david ifun from the algaminer but now it is a reality. It will take some time. It will not be immediate. But as the president was saying himself, this is just an acknowledgement of reality. We finally acknowledge the obvious that Jerusalem is Israel's capital. This is nothing more or less than a recognition of reality. It is also the right thing to do the right thing to do for a whole bunch of reasons and i think we're already seeing why that is when it comes to the response to this move Um, and i should note we will also talk about the latest with the fbi Mueller probe today some interesting updates on that looks like al franken is out of the u.s senate not Definitively yet. I mean, it hasn't happened yet, but it looks like that is very likely right now. I think the accusations are at eight. We'll talk about that. Also, a really uh, chilling story about the complicit, uh, the complicity machine of Harvey Weinstein, super Democrat donor, by the way. That's one way we should. Yes, he's a predator and acted monstrously towards women in Hollywood for decades, but he's also a big bundler, fundraiser, and donor for Hillary Clinton, for Barack Obama, for Bill Clinton. He was Democrat Party royalty. Do not let that slip away from this conversation. So that's all things that we will get to in a bit. First, though, let's focus in on this change today. Uh, I want to talk to you about the responses from the region you have uh, palestinians already protesting look that's that's fine Uh, that's to be expected i suppose in gaza city palestinians were burning photos of president trump Uh, if they want to burn the president in effigy 
I don't know what else they've really got going on right now in Gaza. Uh, that's not that's not surprising. I mean, I think it's foolish, but they're going to do that. But the real concern is that there will be violence. The the problems that we face now as a result of this, we are told, include the possibility of a threat or threats against U.S. embassies across the Middle East. In essence, because the United States, which should just, by the way, be able to put its embassy wherever it darn well pleases, as long as the host country, in this case, Israel is fine with it, right? It, this is a, an us to Israel conversation. This isn't a, hey, UN, what do you think about this conversation? But that we would move an embassy and there would be a response that could include violence tells us a lot about the situation of Israel and the Muslim world, doesn't it? Why would we think that this would result in violence? It, it reminds me of how Whenever somebody speaks out against Islam too prominently, whether it's a cartoonist, a magazine, uh, a, a writer, there are threats of violence. In some cases, there is very real violence that results from it. And it is only when we see that happening, it is only from that, from within that community, from within the Islamic world, that those threats have to be taken so very seriously. Because in the past, it has resulted in terrorist actions and they have told us explicitly the terrorists involved have said this is because of charlie hebdo or this is because of the danish cartoons of muhammad now we've got the equivalent of a a, a building moving i mean that's really what this is i know there's a lot of symbolism and i think the symbolism is important but this isn't going to harm anyone's life in in any muslim majority country This, this isn't a threat to them that anybody would res- that anybody would respond to this with violence is really an, an immediate condemnation in and of itself of those individuals and the way that they view their role in international relations, uh, politics, you name it. Why are we all thinking the same thing here, which is, oh, my gosh, or we're, we're at least told to think it. I don't know if there will be violence or not i think that may be overblown we will see but the consensus opinion here is that trump has set in motion events that will result in violence and my response to that is immediately well what does that say about the position of israel vis-a-vis the muslim world that we have to be worried about violence for what is a peaceful diplomatic decision that Quite honestly, it is none of the Muslim world's business, really. I mean, I know they're going to make it their business, but the U.S., you know, we, we have accepted that they can hold hostage U.S. diplomatic decisions with the threat of violence. That's what that's what's really going on here. There was no future. There was no future in which. Jerusalem was not going to be the capital of Israel as long as there was going to be an Israel. What you see now is that many of the the prominent voices out there, and maybe they're playing to their constituencies, and a, a lot in the Middle East is, you know, sound really tough and anti-Israel when you're a leader of any number of countries. Uh, it sound really tough in public and really, you know, make, make a lot of noise about how you 
disapprove of disgraceful Israeli conduct or whatever. And then in private, you're like, yeah, the Israelis are actually running a uh, a law-abiding, civilized country that wants to live in peace with its neighbors, and we should we'll work with you. We just won't make too big a deal of it. Speaking from the perspective of Muslim countries now, you know, look, the Saudis have come much more on board with Israel in recent years. There's been an understanding Israel's not going anywhere. So why not move the embassy? It is the law as well, I should say it it is an act as passed by Congress, right? The Congress voted for this. I think it was like 96 to zero or something. Basically unanimously. The the Senate passed this uh, as a measure, as a. Yeah, as a symbol, to be sure. But that's on the books already. It's been done. Democrats have been pushing for this in the past. And yet today, if you listen to voices from across the leftist spectrum, they'll tell you that this is, oh, there's going to be terrible ramifications here, and this will result in will result in bloodshed, and it just has derailed the peace process. I would offer you an entirely different vision of what Trump has done here and what Trump has accomplished. And that is the following. He has seen, and you can talk about how he's not an Arab-Israeli policy expert, but we've had Arab-Israeli policy experts for decades trying to figure this out, haven't gotten very far. In fact, the single most important step in peace between Israel and its neighbors has been the Israelis just saying, you know what, we're building a wall We're locking it down here. We want security. No more bus bombings. No more suicide bombers in birthdays or in birthday parties or pizzerias. We're done with it. And and, and we'll talk about everything else after, but we're done with that. You know, no more intifadas and and bloodshed and violence on the streets because the uh, evil terrorists of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and you name it, think that they have a right to kick the Jewish state into the sea. That's what this is really all about now, right? We, we see now Hamas and these other entities, these other groups are hateful towards Israel and continue to be. And that they now have to deal with the psychological shift of, oh my gosh, Israel really is going to be in charge of Jerusalem. Might be too much for some of them to bear, at least without engaging in violence in response. But we've had all these experts. We've had the 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 uh, people across the political spectrum, Democrats, Republicans trying. Bush tried, failed. Uh, Clinton tried and, and really Bill Clinton tried to make this a a major legacy item. You go back to the Camp David Accords and Dennis Ross as chief negotiator. I actually spent a summer as an aside, as a, as a research intern for Dennis Ross in D.C. on his book, The Missing Peace. Very clever title. Uh, And I can tell you this for sure. Peace was missed, as in they did not get it. They did not hit it. Arafat didn't want to take the best deal that he could have ever hoped to get because it wasn't about getting a deal. It was about perpetual strife and keeping Israel in a state of siege until eventually the Arab armies would once again unite as they had tried Several times over the course of the 20th century, they would unite and they would steamroll and destroy Israel as a Jewish state. That's what it was. That's what we saw with Arafat and all the stuff with the PLO and the PA and the negotiations. And well, we've had the experts trying it and it didn't work. 
Trump comes in and he says, okay, well, I've got an idea. How about instead of negotiating from a position of placating, which is what, oh, we won't move our embassy to Jerusalem because we don't want to upset the other side, Trump's decided that he will, as I like to say, take action. This is leadership, everyone. I know that the mainstream media is going to tell you a thousand times between now and Friday, oh, Trump doesn't know what he's doing and how could he and now Middle East peace will never happen and all this. No, nonsense. How could it get much worse? The Obama administration, I should note, couldn't get to square one, could not get to first base when it came to Israeli-Palestinian peace or negotiations of any kind. I mean, they and I, that was in large part, I think, because the focus was so much on making a deal for the Iranians that the Iranians couldn't refuse because it was such a sweetheart deal. And really the mortgaging of the rest of Mideast policy from the U.S. perspective, while Obama was commander-in-chief with John Kerry and before him, Hillary Clinton as secretaries of state, do everything they can to get an Iran deal. An Iran deal that in the long term will, will absolutely be disastrous for us. I, I am convinced. Now you've got a new administration. They come in and Trump says, why would I not? Why would I not move the embassy? What's the what's the counterargument? And when you listen to the counterarguments are weak. And if nothing else, to shake us out of and some of you might be saying, well, how important is this for for uh, for us? And aren't there other issues? And, and I, look, I, I understand that. But we've been engaged militarily in the Middle East multiple times in recent presidencies. Uh, we have a close alliance with the Israeli state and with the people of Israel. And we do want to see peace and prosperity in the region. It's better for all of us. We, we shouldn't have to live in a world where the Mideast is a constant mess. We don't have to accept that for all eternity, Sunni and Shia and Iranian and Saudi and all the rest of it, they'll be killing each other or paying others to kill others. And we, we don't have to say that that's the way it will be. But you have to do something. You have to take action. And Trump here has done just that. Leadership under Obama was strategic patience. It was leading from behind. It was red lines that are erased. Leadership under Trump is we need to do something here that will get important issues moving. I, I think it's I think it's the way to do it. I really do. Um, and I think that he has uh, shown that so many of the foggy bottom State Department thinking or aligned folks out there and the Democrat left, although some Democrats are on board for this, so many of them haven't even really thought through what they're saying. If Jerusalem is the capital of Israel, and it is, what's the problem with our embassy being there? Whose idea was it to keep delaying and deferring and delaying and deferring? Trump has taken action, and I think it is leadership. We'll be right back. Nevertheless, the record is in. After more than two decades of waivers, we are no closer to a lasting peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. It would be folly to assume that repeating the exact same formula would now produce a different or better result. The president's right. You know, as everyone likes to say, one of the, one of the great cliches, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. So 
all we're doing with Arab-Israeli peace process or Palestinian-Israeli peace process. They weren't. There's no better deal than what they were offered at Camp David back in uh, 2000 or back under the Clinton administration. There's, there was no better offer that could ever happen for them. I mean, they wanted the right of return, which meant that Palestinians who, well, this is a long and complicated discussion, but the Palestinians who had fled when Arab armies had tried to destroy the Jewish state uh, would be allowed to come back. And they also couldn't figure out final status talks on Jerusalem. So Trump is just saying, look, let's do something. That's that's better than the alternative. And I would just note that the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995 is, is a law. It's just a good thing for us to see that there is this expectation. If nothing else, I think Trump shatters this at some level, that there's an expectation that the Congress can pass laws but like no one's really going to do anything about it, you know, that the law isn't always the law. It doesn't really have any meaning. They can get away with doing things for show instead of clearly uh, acting on what they've promised to do. And at a time when you have so many in the GOP who seem unwilling to really repeal Obamacare, for example, and we don't even know what the full number is, but I can tell you. There are some who, when push comes to shove, they, re- they really don't want to do it. We've seen some of them, but I know John McCain. There have been others, though. It wasn't even a full repeal. Uh, that there's the Jerusalem Embassy Act passed in 1995, and we keep doing waivers and waivers and delay and waivers. That's nonsense. And then you also have the uh, Secure Fence Act, right? We're supposed to build a border fence. Congress voted for that. And you have members of Congress who will run on, you know, build the dang fence when they want to win and when they want to raise money. And then when they're actually in, in office and, and push comes to shove, they're not they're not serious about it. I want a Congress that passes laws that it means to pass and that it's that it expects to have force or be taken into uh, be taken into reality to, to be made real. Right. This isn't just an exercise in posturing. And when you look at the Jerusalem Embassy Act, you look at the Secure Fence Act. I mean, this is just it just goes to show you what a bunch of scoundrels have been running amok in D.C. for such a long time. They pass laws and then they're like, no, no, but we're, that's not really a law. Right. I mean, come on. Uh, don't even get me started on Illegal immigration, illegal aliens, they're changing the language, they don't want the law to be enforced, all these different carve-outs. And remember this, all right, the the essence of a true tyranny is not strictly enforced laws. The essence of a, of a true tyranny is, in fact, capricious or arbitrary law. Jerusalem's supposed to be the embassy, where the embassy is? Let's make that where the embassy is. It's really a pretty straightforward concept, isn't it, but... We'll get into this some more with uh, Mary Kissel from the Wall Street Journal, and then we'll talk about when Franken's going to be out, assuming he will be out. Stay with me. So the Trump administration has made the decision to move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. This is a major jolt for the administration's foreign policy and could, in fact, get going the beginnings of a peace process between the Palestinians, the Palestinian Authority, and the Israelis. 
So what can we make of all this? We've got Mary Kissel on the line now. She is a member of the Wall Street Journal's editorial board. Mary, great to have you. I just want to toss it to you. What are your first reactions to the president's announcement today? It is a great day. Uh, it's a great day because President Trump has finally acknowledged reality, which is that Jerusalem has been the capital of Israel uh, since modern Israel was founded nearly 70 years ago. So uh, it's important to have truth in advertising, and it's important to have truth in foreign policy. And the president has simply acknowledged what everybody already knows, the Supreme Court, uh, the legislature, the office of the prime minister and the president are in Jerusalem, and that's what Trump said today. Why are Democrats acting like, one, they weren't in favor of this in the past? I know this is a slow pitch down the middle, but I want to <laughs> watch you hit it. They're acting like, one, it's not something they've supported in the past, and two, it is already existing U.S. law and U.S. policy as passed by the Congress. Yeah, and passed in a resolution, again, by the Congress not so long ago. Look, um, uh, I'll, maybe I'll take you by surprise here. I'm not going to smear Democrats writ large, because there are some Democrats who have supported this measure. Um, Chuck but, Schumer, right? Yeah, Chuck Schumer, that's correct. Um, but others, like Dianne Feinstein, for instance, has come out and said, well, you know, maybe you're moving too fast. Uh, look, uh, I can't get into their heads, Buck, but all I can say is is that I think that they uh, fear the same kind of reaction that Doves and President Trump's cabinet, like Rex Tillerson and Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, fear that somehow that this is going to lead to violence. Of course, this that has the that kind of thinking has the opposite effect because if you a perpetuate the fiction that Jerusalem is somehow not the capital of Israel, and b you bow to threats of violence for acknowledging that reality, I think you're only encouraging more of it. I think much better for the White House to press forward and to say, look, uh, we're not going to pretend anymore, and if you Palestinians want to come to the table with uh, a real deal, um, then then stop getting out on the streets, uh, you know, pretending that Jerusalem is something that it isn't. What do you think the Palestinian leadership, uh, other than playing to their own base with all this, what do you think they hope to accomplish by making it so very public? And not just Palestinian leadership. I think there have been uh, Jordanians, obviously the Turks. They called it a red line. Uh, do you think they really are, are going to hold this against the United States in a meaningful way when it comes to policy? Or do they have to make a big show of, oh, this is terrible, but they will accept the new reality as this embassy literally gets built, which is going to take some time. Well, I, I think it's more of the latter. Uh, the Middle East has much larger problems than where we put U.S. diplomats, uh, whether they're in Tel Aviv or in West Jerusalem, where the consulate is right now. And just to take off a list of a few things, um, Iran extending its power from Tehran to the Mediterranean, uh, Vladimir Putin intervening in Syria to keep Bashar al-Assad in power, and all of the predations there, uh, turmoil in Lebanon, a war in Yemen, uh, I think that the Middle Eastern leaders can see uh, these events just as easily as the Palestinians can and, and, and as easily as diplomats in Washington can and the Trump administration. And I think they're beginning to realize, whether publicly or behind closed doors, 
that threats from, say, the revolutionary regime in Iran are far more important than an embassy issue. So I think these statements that we're seeing out of Turkey and Jordan and the like are more bark than bite. We're speaking to Mary Kissel of the Wall Street Journal here about the administration, the Trump administration decision to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Mary, do you think it's fair to say that the issue of uh, what people refer to as Arab-Israeli peace or Israeli-Palestinian peace, that that process is not any more viewed as quite the same panacea for the problems of the Middle East, or it, it, it doesn't have the same resonance that I feel like uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago even people would say that it did as a means of, oh, if we solve Arab-Israeli issues, everything else will follow? It seems to me like there's been a shift. The Israelis have certainly shifted. They just want security. Well, I think the Saudis have shifted, too. Um, the Saudis have cooperated with Israel for a while on things like intelligence, um, but you see far more outward signs that their interests are starting to converge, at least vis-a-vis uh, Iran, encountering that threat. Uh, look, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian dispute never had anything to do um, with these other problems in the Middle East. There was just a pretense that it did, and I just think that that reality has become more evident uh, given the turmoil that has enveloped the region uh, since the rise of ISIS, since the nuclear deal empowered Iran. Mary, can you see a future with this administration? Can you see President Trump possibly being the one who gets further in a negotiation with the Palestinian Authority and, and obviously with the Israelis gets further in trying to broker that process than any of his predecessors? Or is that just too rosy to even think about at this point? Well, it's hard to say until uh, we we understand what Jason Greenblatt, Trump's negotiator, and Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, are negotiating behind closed doors. Because right now, um, we have pretty much no information on what is being talked about there. I mean, I tend to think, Buck, that it's far better uh, to to do incremental steps towards peace, uh, to bank those gains, and then to build on them, than to try to come up with some massive overarching peace deal. Um, I think that the Trump administration, just judging again from the smoke signals that we're getting, thinks that they can solve the problem from the outside in, um, that they can uh, convince the Saudis and other Gulf states uh, to come together and ally with the United States and Israel in a bid to solve the region's bigger problems, and then you know convince the Palestinians that they are kind of a side issue and that they'd best get along to the negotiating table with some real offers. Uh, whether or not that works, it's anybody's guess, uh, but that, that seems to be how the White House is thinking. Mary, before I let you go, get back to uh, helping to run a major newspaper. Let me just ask you, if you had to pick one place in 2018 in the Mideast that will either deteriorate rapidly or you think is a place that could surprise us with how badly it could go, what would it be? Libya. I think that the ungoverned space in central and southern Libya, uh, where you have a resurgent Islamic state and other jihadist movements um, that has been largely ignored um, by the United States, where the U.N. process is, of course, breaking down, um, that is a, a place where I think a lot of fighters will go. It's a place where these jihadis can get a source of revenue because they're getting into the smuggling business. And I think it is a source of training and support 
support and sucker uh, to the movement that President Trump says he wants to eliminate. So that's a place I would certainly keep your eye on. Mary Kissel of The Wall Street Journal. Great to have you. Thanks so much for being with us. <laughs> Welcome. Team, we are going to roll into a break. We'll be right back with much more. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. Stay with me. As I was saying, team, Buck Sexton here. It's, uh, it's been a tough week for the, uh, for the Mueller probe. It's been uh, a difficult one. And I think it's going to get a lot worse for them on this uh, issue of Peter Strzok. As I found out, that's how we say his name. Uh, Justice Department officials, according to Fox News here, are reading through over 10,000 texts between FBI officials Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, a lawyer at the FBI, after it emerged that Strzok was removed from special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe following the discovery of anti-Trump messages between them. There is also uh, going to be a contempt uh, resolution, I believe. They're moving forward. The review process is happening as a contempt resolution against top DOJ and FBI officials may come from Congress because they have not complied. The FBI has not complied with a deadline to hand over information that, as Fox writes here, goes well beyond text messages. Quote, Strzok is a focus of their efforts. House investigators have long regarded him as a key figure in the chain of events when the Bureau in 2016 received the infamous anti-Trump dossier and launched a counterintelligence investigation into Russian meddling in the election that ultimately came to encompass Pfizer surveillance of a Trump campaign associate. Hmm. So we may have an anti-Trump partisan who was involved in every highly charged or highly politically charged investigation and uh and and really critical political event of the last 18 months or so Hillary's email investigation interviewing Flynn the counterintelligence investigation of Trump associates and then even the Mueller probe and the FBI didn't want to hand doesn't want to hand over this stuff they're holding it back. They are not interested in letting everybody know exactly what this individual thinks of President Trump, this uh, senior FBI official struck. Let me say this. Uh, the American public, at least those of us who are paying attention, has, because of the democratization of information, because we all have the computing power in our pockets right now uh, that exceeds what the entire NATO alliance in like 1950 would have had, right? I mean, because we are now able to get so much more information and that creates a much greater uh, public understanding, I think, of many of these institutions, the media, the courts, the federal government, and now even the federal law enforcement agencies, we are seeing a very troubling trend, and that is political bias at a high level and always tends to go one way. If it were just something that happens, wouldn't we all think that at some point you would also have very high-profile cases where the left was targeted, 
right? Where's the IRS targeting of progressive activist groups? Where's the IRS hounding media matters for pretending to be uh, some kind of public research foundation or whatever 501C it is, when in reality it's just a, a Democrat hit group that goes after conservative media uh, outlets and personalities. That's all it is. It's just attack dogs that have a tax break. But you're not going to hear about the IRS hounding them. You're not going to hear about the IRS being used as a weapon against the left. It only happens in one direction. And we should ask the question, why is that? And I would tell you this, the same way that we now know that, I mean, the media, we've known, since I was a kid, it's been clear. And it really did happen right around, you know, me, Buck becoming a man, you know, but me growing up in the, in the 80s and 90s. We started to figure out, hey, all these news networks, they're not just giving us the straight scoop. Then you had the rise of talk radio. Thank you very much, Rush and company. And you had Fox and you had Drudge. And all of a sudden there were these alternative places to get your information. And now we all just know that the media is a part, a, a, an overwhelmingly partisan organism. We've also come to learn and accept that all this talk about how the judiciary is nonpartisan, Supreme Court is supposed to be about the law, not about politics. That's also a joke, right? We see this whenever a Supreme Court seat is available and the ferocity of the fight on both sides of the aisle to try and get somebody that ideologically lines up with their beliefs. The federal bureaucracy is the next one on this list. When you look at the donations, and I will, uh, I will credit uh, David French over at National Review for sharing this last, writing about it at National Review and sharing it on Twitter. And, you know, David is, is very critical of Trump, but a, a, an honorable guy and a smart guy. And he put out there that the donations from the federal government, the donations from the DOJ are, as I've been saying, it's like the Oberlin Faculty Lounge is... Running the FBI. It's like the Reed College Students Association. I don't know, I'm, really, I'm really picking out my favorite like leftist wacko institutions here uh, or universities and colleges. But the Reed College Students Association is running things over at DOJ. They're given 90, 90% of donations, 95% of donations to Hillary, to Obama. You think that that doesn't influence the way these institutions operate? You see, that this is the important distinction. This isn't an indictment of everybody who works for the FBI or everybody who works for DOJ. And by the way, FBI guys, you're great, and I think you do great work. And if we ever have to chat, I just want you to know how wonderful I think you are. Uh, but, you know, seriously, these are organizations that overwhelmingly have a mission set that, that, that isn't about politics. And we should remember that, right? We're focused so much now on a DOJ investigation and the operations of the FBI within it because a presidency is at stake, because a political movement may be destroyed through subterfuge and and lies. That's what's at stake. So we're very focused on it. But that's not the day to day of what the FBI or the DOJ or any number of other federal bureaucracies. I've been saying this from the beginning of Trump's so-called feud with the intelligence community. 
Trump's feud has never been with people that just show up to do their jobs at Langley. Guys like me, nobody knows or cares what they're up to and just another cog in the machine. Trump's feud is with the very senior and connected and powerful folks who run these organizations who like to talk to their favorite mouthpieces at the Washington Post, the New York Times, to undermine U.S. national security policy and to undermine the administration's implementation of it. That's what Trump's feud has been about. Right? He's, he's not picking fights with uh, little old you know cubicle warrior analysts like me, right? He was, or he's trying to say that there's something wrong at the top, and that's where our focus should be. And, and I, I do believe that we will find out as this info, because why didn't the FBI want to share this? They're clearly dragging their heels on Strzok and uh, his, uh, what, what, paramour? Is that the proper word? Is the woman with which he was having an affair at the FBI. I'm surprised. I would think the FBI would have a similar disciplinary approach to such activity. This is an aside, but, you know, under UCMJ, no affairs. It's a good rule. Uh, Somebody I know in the business world recently, I found out if if he finds out that somebody that he's going to engage in business with has has, uh, you know, cheated on left left his wife, doesn't want to work with him because he says he can't trust him. So I think that there's, you know, this is a whole, this is a whole other conversation. But I'm surprised that I know in UCMJ it's illegal, right? You can't have an affair under UCMJ. It's you'll get in trouble for it. Um, but the FBI, I guess, it's considered not as big a deal. I don't know. Uh, but these two individuals engaged in this in this affair. Look, it was consensual. They're adults. I get all that. I'm not saying it's anything terrible. But were they hiding it because of the embarrassment of this? Are they slow rolling it because? They just don't want internal dirty laundry aired out? Or is it because this could call into question the honesty and uh, the impartiality of the entire Russia collusion investigation and the narrative around it? I I think you know what, what I'm feeling on this. I think you know what answer I'd give right now, and I think a lot of you agree with me. Senator Al Franken is toast, I think. Not 100% sure yet, but a very good chance that Al Franken is not going to be the senator from Minnesota a whole lot longer. Oh, really? We ju- Okay, as I am on air, Tyrone just tells me now, there's the, the report, he has not resigned, the reports he will resign, and I was tweeting out hours ago, he's toast, because clearly he's he is donezo, put a fork in him, it's all over. Uh, it, the, the dam broke today, and you had, for example, uh, Senator Ke- Ke- uh, See, I was going to say Kirsten. It's Kristen, everybody. Not Kirsten, Kristen. Those are the toughest names in the English language for me. Uh, Gillibrand said that uh, Franken should resign earlier today. You need to draw a line in the sand and say none of it is okay. None of it is acceptable. And we, as elected leaders, should absolutely be held to a higher standard, not a lower standard. And we should fundamentally be valuing women. And that is where this debate has to go. Would you call on leadership to join your calls for Senator Franken to step down? I have expressed my views in a detailed op-ed that you can now have access to. I do not feel that he should continue to serve. Everyone will make their own judgment. Uh, I hope they do make their own judgment. Uh, a bunch of other Democrats made that judgment, too. And the judgment is as far, well, 16 of them, 10 of them women, and, and one Republican senator, Susan Collins of Maine. They have said, Franken has got to go. Um, 
I've always I've always heard and gotten the sense that Franken was a nasty fellow. So that he would act in such a reprehensible way toward women, quite honestly, that he would act in a reprehensible way in general, but toward women in particular, uh, is not surprising to me. That he tried to ride this whole situation out, though, for three weeks tells you a lot. This broke three weeks ago, and this Democrat senator was like, you know what, I, I think if I give the apology, um, I'm going to be able to lay low. And I will even go as far as to say earlier today when it, when it was announced that Franken would be making it a, in a, well, having a press conference or putting out a statement tomorrow. The reason he didn't resign today is I think he was like, you know, maybe I'll wake up tomorrow and there's a bunch of Trump tweets and we can talk about something else. Maybe, just maybe, there's some way that I can get out of this thing and, and stay in my seat as Al Franken. That's, I think he was hoping that that was still an option. It no longer seems like it is an option. He is going to be stepping down. Now, there's a couple things here. First of all, uh, the politics of this, to me, are pretty clear. Yes, there's this moment right now where women are to be, uh, where, where any accusations like this, you know, women are to be believed is, is the mantra that's uh, finally taken hold in all of these different or a vast majority of these cases. And there's this political movement. We haven't really had a, I've called it the purge of the perverts. I mean, we haven't really found a, a catchy or succinct way to describe it. But there's something going on here, right? Just one after another. You know, I, I can't even begin to name them all. Just the dominoes are falling on the abusers and the harassers and the sexual deviants and assaulters, right? This is, this is what's going on across the country. Uh, it's happening in Hollywood, happening in politics, happening in corporate America. But in this specific case with Al Franken, what I think's going on is a Democrat. Well, first of all, you had a what were we at eight accusers now? Is that the is that the total? What's the total tally, Tyrone, against uh, Franken? Seven, seven or eight? I mean, you know, I, I think if you waited another week, it'd probably be ten. You know, by Christmas, it would be a dozen. I should also note that when he was initially saying sorry. Then there was the whole, oh, but I don't know if there'll be more. And I think I said on this show, I certainly said to Tyrone and Amy here in the hut, uh, that, you know, you, you either know or you, you don't know. And if you did, you know. Meaning that there's the I don't know if I've done more bad stuff from Al Franken was just like, you know, well, maybe people, you know, maybe I won't get in trouble. And, you know. But he had to know. I mean, the stuff that he's being accused of here, he allegedly grabbed a woman and tried to make out with her. And then said, it's my right as an ent- entertainer or something like that, which is just, who says that? You know, I mean, it, it almost, uh, it's, it's, it's hard to fathom, except you got so many women saying similar things, that he was trying to write a skit where he could, you know, stick his tongue in down a woman's throat and she didn't want him to. And you know, the whole thing, it was so creepy and gross, the whole situation. But why are they finally... Turning uh, the tables, or not turning the tables. Why they, they they've turned up the pressure on Franken, and I think he's going to be out. Well, one, he had just more accusers, and at some point this was going to be untenable for Democrats. But on the political level, they know that it has to be now because they want to try and establish that Democrats take serious. They're going to just sweep under the rug, or or say it's water under the bridge, you know. Pick your pick your analogy, pick your metaphor. They're going to say it's no longer something we have to think about with the uh, 
about the past with the way Democrats were treating women, Bill Clinton, Teddy Kennedy, all that, right? They're going to say, well, now we're now we've cleaned up our house just in time for Democrats to also say, but but Republicans won't with Roy Moore. Now, one of the biggest differences between the Roy Moore and Al Franken situations, and there are a lot of differences, but one of the biggest differences is Franken admitted it. He's come out of it. Roy Moore denies all the charges. But Democrats are saying or are going to say, see, we were willing to force Franken to step down for what is a completely safe seat, right? That's going to be blue. They've already got a, a succession plan in place. I think the lieutenant governor is probably going to take over. Uh, Go- governor Mark Dayton is going to have Lieutenant Governor Tina Smith most likely take over if Franklin resigns tomorrow, which I think he will. And, and you know, it's going to be Democrats up there. I don't know what's going on, Minnesota. Your state has been uh, has been taken over by the by the commies. I don't know. You got. You're a deep blue state now in the middle of the country, and you can't blame it. It's not like Illinois where you can just blame Chicago. Like, Minnesota, come on. You're killing me here. Such lovely people. I wish they uh, – I know there's all all these great conservatives in Minnesota are like, you're going to blame me, Buck? You live in New York. I Look, I know. It's tough, right? The blue state phenomenon, what can you do? But Franken's seat is going to stay in Democrat hands. So there's really no great act of political bravery here. Franken's position was untenable. There are more accusers coming out. The number now is, has gotten to the point where, I mean, I think we knew at accusation, well, based on the specificity of it, probably accusation number. Well, I'm sorry, we had a photo. Forget the accusations. <laughs> we knew all along there was a problem here. We had photo. We had photographic evidence, which I should also note changes, should change our thinking about Franken initially apologizing. I mean, he was caught red-handed if you will no you know he was caught uh not trying to play on words there with with his handsiness but he was he was uh in photo in photographs doing stuff he shouldn't have been doing so we knew he apologized thought that maybe he could hold on to his post but he could not well we'll see npr tyrone tells me says that he will resign tomorrow i think he will but until he actually does it you know you, you never know these guys are megalomaniacs, overwhelmingly megalomaniacs. They are also uh, solipsistic. They think that the sun revolves around them. Solipsism, I would be willing to bet if you could do a psych profile of Senator Franken, solipsism would be a, a defining characteristic for that guy. How he ever became a senator... It is is beyond me. But this is why when people start to say that The Rock may run for president in 2020, I'm like, The Rock could win. The Rock, absolutely. Maybe he wouldn't be Trump, but he could be president. Uh, the Rock would be formidable for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, we, we've, we're way past the, oh, you need qualifications and you need uh, political experience and all that. That's That's the old thinking. That's gone. Now we're in a media and a social media dominated environment. But anyway. You can expect that if Franken goes, the calls, uh, well, I, I wonder, actually, I think there's a case for some, I think some Democrats believe it would be better, that a better situation for them would be, in fact, if Roy Moore won, because they are going to, yeah, I'm getting a nod here from the from the rest of the hut, they are going 
to hammer the GOP for what they're calling it pedophile support. That's what they're, they're saying, that, that the GOP supports pedophiles. And I should note that pedophilia and racism, this used to be the case, less so now. I think it's lost a bit of its uh, a bit of its bite as just an allegation. But any, as anyone can tell you, especially in anything having to do with the criminal justice system, but also in terms of your public life and public profile, anything about pedophilia that's thrown at any at anybody is the annihilation of their reputation. Even if it turns out to be untrue. And Democrats, I think, will try to capitalize on that as much as possible, not as just a Roy Moore issue, but as a C. Now they can't talk about how Bill Clinton was an accused rapist, credibly accused of rape, a a crime of, of force and violence for which people go to prison for a very long time. Two term president for the Democrats. Teddy Kennedy let a woman drown in the backseat of his car while he was tr- a woman he was having an affair with. Uh, while he was trying to establish a, a, an alibi for himself. Chappaquiddick, just do a quick Google search on it. You'll be amazed. The lion of the Senate, you know. Amazing stuff when you think about it. Appalling stuff. But the Democrats are hoping that they can use a Roy Moore victory as a cudgel, as a, as a, uh, a bat with which to attack the rest of the GOP. Uh, and that's, I think, factoring into the decision to finally cut ties with Franken here. So, yeah, I mean, Franken, he's he's got to go. I just want to note, this is an aside, Conyers did his whole I'm resigning thing, right, which was also added to the I'm going to endorse my son for the for the uh, seat as though this were a hereditary monarchical position. Uh, and I asked this yesterday, John Conyers III, producer Amy sent this to me, uh, who Representative Conyers wants to replace him in Congress, was arrested earlier this year on suspicion of domestic violence, but was not prosecuted. So, arrested, suspicion, but that's all we have so far. Uh, I, I knew there was something. I think he. I think there's some other trouble that he's gotten into as well. I'll, I'll dig into this some more. But he's. it's interesting that Conyers is like, yeah, my son will take over the seat. Like, this is a... Uh, like, they're running a... Uh, you know, a family restaurant, and just once the dad decides it's time to retire, the son gets to run the run the place. Um, Conyers also said something about to, to a. I, I want to make sure I get this right because you're just getting all these different stories coming at the same time. Here you go. Mediaite has the story up. John Conyers allegedly brought up murdered Chandra Levy when an intern refused his sexual advances. That is some next level aggressive, vile, unacceptable stuff. I mean, this is a the, you know that's the intern who and I believe they end up finding out that she was a, she was attacked she was killed in a park right Rock wasn't that the Rock Creek Park she was found in Rock Creek Park right and and they arrested a I want to say it was an illegal immigrant in the end, but I'm not sure. Let me check on it. We'll check on that. So put a put a pin in that one, team. Let me make sure that I get this right. But there's a, a girl who was abducted and murdered. And Conyers is bringing that up in the context of, and she was an intern on Capitol Hill. And Conyers is bringing, and there was the uh, there was a congressman that she was having an affair with, or at least that was the allegation at the time. I forget, This was a long time ago. I forget the specifics. What do you got, Tyrone? It was an illegal immigrant from El Salvador. Thank you. That's what I thought. My, my, my memory's pretty good on the fly, i got to say. 
but to bring that up with an intern that's refused your sexual events, first of all, that a member of Congress would think, although Bill Clinton, right, White House intern, they've they've been doing this for a long time, that a member of Congress would think that it's uh, open season to hit on interns in any capacity is, it's just mind-blowing that this has been going on. And those of you who are, are frequent listeners to the show know that I, I said all along, just wait till we get to the D.C. component of this, right after the Weinstein stuff, because it's the same, you have the same dynamic. You have a lot of guys in D.C., because this is a male phenomenon, right? This, this abuser, harasser, using leveraging power for, uh, for sexual purposes, whether just professionally or illegally in some cases. Um, it's a male thing, but you, you have these members of Congress who they get a little power, they get a little fame. And they just can't help themselves. They just cannot help themselves. So, whenever I can, I like to bring you good news here on the Buck Sexton Show. And with that in mind, I want to share the following with you. A bill has passed in the House that would allow concealed carry permit holders to take their guns across state lines. Uh, This would be... An excellent piece of legislation. It also would include efforts to bolster this bill, right? It would include efforts to bolster the national background check system. And there would be a study of bump stocks like the ones uh, that were used in the Las Vegas mass shooting. I should know we will return to the issue of the Las Vegas mass shooting, if not this week, next week, just to do a full roundup of all the information uh, We never really got the information, did we? A lot of questions still unanswered about Las Vegas. No motive. I was saying to you early on, you can go back and based on the podcast, you can. The great thing about having a show that's also podcasted every day is there's a record of what I've been saying, my analysis, predictions and thoughts on different things. I was willing to go and say that uh, I didn't think that they were going to have a motive for us. They're either they either can't find it or they're concealing it at this point. It's one or the other. And and I even went on Fox. You had some other analysts going on Fox saying, oh, any minute now, uh, my sources are telling me they're going to tell us what the the motive was here for the mass shooting. And I was like, well, that never happened. And um, I think that we are deserving answers still. We should know what happened there. But anyway, Las Vegas, I I still have many, many questions. And there just hasn't been the follow-on uh, reporting that you would expect, given the gravity. I mean, such a, a horrific incident. 58 people killed, injured more than 500. Um, but so that's a part of this bill. But back to the the other part of it, that would be the, from a policy perspective, the one that had the greatest impact, which is concealed carry reciprocity. It's just insane right now that you could have a concealed carry permit in, I don't know, uh, Let's say you have one for Pennsylvania and you drive into New York, you're, you're going to get arrested and not arrested like, hey, we're going to take you down to the station and then, you know, give you back your handgun and, and send you on your way until you don't do it again. You're going to get arrested like you might end up spending a few years in Rikers Island prison arrested. In fact, New York is so aggressive about firearms that they have on a few occasions arrested people whose planes were diverted to New York City, then had to uncheck their luggage 
because they were on a different flight than they were initially scheduled for because of weather or whatever. And then the airline reported it to the police who made the arrest at the airport. Literally nothing those lawful gun owners could have done to avoid the arrest. That's how psychotic the New York gun laws are. It's bad in other places, too. But if, if you're going to... If you're going to honor driver's licenses from different states, why can't you honor concealed carry permits from different states? And if the Second Amendment is a federally binding thing because it's in the Constitution, uh, I think this is a great idea. And it is. I think this is a great idea. And Republicans in Congress actually doing some stuff. Hasn't passed the Senate yet. We'll see. A lot, of, a lot of weak knees in the GOP side on in uh, the Senate, but we will see. Uh, but this would be great. So, see, it's not all fire and brimstone, gloom and doom up here in the Freedom Hut, my friends. There's good news sometimes, and you might be able to carry your gun anywhere. I think they just don't teach kids about socialism anymore, or what they do teach them is lies. Not true. That's the conclusion I have to come away with after after reading this a piece in the Wall Street Journal about how millennials, which I refer to myself as a gray beard millennial, I am a, I am a, uh, I'd like to think a, I was going to say a wise thirty-five, but wise guy maybe. Hey, uh, but I, I see what's happening right now. That the trend in the country among my near peers. And the change in their attitudes towards socialism, and it is concerning. Let me just let me give you some of the numbers, and then let's talk about what's hap- what's happening here, or why this is happening, because it's going to have a very big impact on the country. I think millennials are now, or are soon to become, the largest demographic in terms of those who are voting age. I think we're 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 close to that. I should check. Um, Bruce, I mean, let me know if that if I'm right on that one. I think millennials have now just crossed over into the. We're, we're bigger than the boomers and the Gen Xers and the Gen Yers, I think, maybe. I don't know. But we're definitely more accepting of socialism. Here's what has uh, made its way into the pages of the Wall Street Journal today. Uh, you have people aged 18 to 29, uh, positive views of capitalism and positive views of socialism. That's how they line it up. And if you're 18 to 29, wait, I guess, is that? No, that's not. T- I think if you're born after 1980, you're a millennial is my understanding, right? I think that's what so I was not. That's right. I bear. I squeak in under the wire there. What's up? Uh, but if you're 18 to 29, it's about 50 50 that you have a positive view of capitalism and a positive view of socialism. You get into the other generations to give you a sense of. Yeah, I know you should be happy. Those of you listening who are who are uh, 50 and up, you all know what's actually that almost turned into a y'all. You all know what is I don't want to get my. Uh, my next invitation revoked from New Orleans, so I, I can't start throwing the y'alls around yet. Uh, but socialism is bad, and you know it. Age 50 to 64, according to this study, you have about, call it almost 70%, have a positive view of capitalism, and like 25% have a positive view of socialism. 65 and older, because you probably remember more about the Soviet Union, the Iron Curtain, the imprisonment and enslavement of hundreds of millions of people around the world under the ideology of socialism. I don't even think kids that like socialism know that the early uh, the early Soviets 
referred to themselves as socialists. This this was the that, that socialism was the basis for. And they'll say, "Oh, Marxism, socialism was the basis for communism." That communism is just a version of socialism. They don't know any of this stuff. They they don't teach it in school. They don't assign books like Whitaker Chambers' Witness, which you should all read if you have the time and the inclination. Highly, highly recommend it to you. Uh, Chambers was among the uh, found. I believe he was a co-founder of National Review, or at least one of the early founders of National Review. Uh, but you should read Witness if you have not already. You should certainly read the Matrokin archive if you ever get the chance to learn about what the KGB was really up to during the Cold War. And you should read Blacklisted by History on how the left, the intelligentsia, journalists, the media, professors, academia, they going back all the way to the pre-World War II era were very favorably disposed toward communists, if not fellow travelers, if not selling out their country, if not betraying their fellow Americans to help the so-called workers' paradise, the socialist ideal made real in the Soviet Union. Kids don't, they don't learn this stuff. They don't know. They aren't taught it. And I know this because I wasn't taught it. I had to learn it on my own. They'll say, oh, well, look at look at Sweden and look at Norway. And I always have to laugh. Those are not socialist countries. <laughs> this is they, they, they don't even learn that. Right. They say, oh, you get Bernie Sanders. You know, it's like people are starving in the streets in, in, you know, Denmark. I think it's great. They got the bicycles and everybody's very friendly. And, you know, they speak like five languages, all of which is true, by the way. Denmark's a great country. I really like the Danes. Not a hilarious people in general, like not a lot of. Not a lot of great Danish stand-up comics I've come across, but I, I like them. You know, I like the Danish people. Um, but they just pay high taxes and have a large social welfare state. But they don't have government control of the means of production. They're not truly socialist. Uh, and I don't even think that this is a distinction that these people that are being polled and the 18 to 29-year-olds in particular, I don't think they know. And it's troubling. Because you've seen over the course of the last, oh, let's call it last hundred years or so, communism and socialism was out in the open in this country. And then it fell out of favor a bit, but it also morphed. It metamorphosized into the Democrat Party. That a lot of, and this is how you have Bernie Sanders running as a Democrat socialist in the last election, openly. Right? There's a lot of crossover. A large state that is in control of the private assets of its citizenry that can redistribute it at will and that has total say over economic activity. A lot of Democrats are on board for that. But the people who think they're on board for it, as we see in this Wall Street Journal poll, the kids who are out there and I'm saying kids, they're basically my age. Those younger millennials Get off my lawn, young millennials. Those younger millennials, they don't know the first thing about what it would actually mean to live in a socialist country. They don't understand that the the greatest single point of failure in Venezuela, for example, has to do with price controls. The Vene- look, Maduro is, is, is an imbecile and a, and a thug and a clown, but 
He didn't come into power like, hey, I've got an idea. Let's create bread lines, implode the entire economy, and have the country spiral into violence, uh, despair, and and depravity. I mean, that, that, that was not the plan. The plan was to take care of the, of the working folks and the peasants, and the plan was to give more to the guys who didn't have enough. Dare I say the plan was to, you know, to help the forgotten middle class and, and lower class of Venezuela. But they came in, they said, well, we're going to tell you what that can, what you can charge for that, which is popular at first, because people like to buy things for less than they would be in a free market until they realize that that means they won't be able to buy any of it anymore because it won't get produced. And then you'll have a black market and it'll be more expensive than it ever was in the black market and so on and so forth. And, and then you, all the other uh, you know, state intrusion into the economy creates more state intrusion into the economy. If you want a, a, an eloquent uh, but in-depth and a little bit of a slog, you could read Hayek's The Road to Serfdom which is largely an explanation of this concept or an exploration of this concept, which is at the moment the government begins to make decisions in a market, it is likely, in fact, it is almost inevitable the government will try to make more decisions to correct and counteract the decisions it's already made. This is just like when you give bureaucrats power that is outside of what is defined by law, they will find ways to increase that power, enlarge the size of the bureaucracy, and do more and more and more. The self, the great self-licking ice cream cone, as I call it. But it, it should be troubling to all of us because we have this notion that people will become more conservative as they get older. And I think that's true. I think you pay enough taxes and you see enough lies from uh, the Democrats. And, and, and look, enough, it's not like... Republicans should be sitting around thinking their party's great. I think the Republican Party is deeply disappointing most of the time. And I, I, I wish there was a, a way that was feasible to support something that was not one of the two major parties. But then you're just, then you get to be a libertarian. You can wear like a, wear like a cool leather jacket and go to parties and be like, hey, I'm a libertarian. I rode a motorcycle here. I don't even believe in paying for streets. <laughs> I mean, libertarians are great. I love them. And I, I'm just kidding. I, lo- I, got a lo- I got a lot of libertarian friends. You know, they're great people. But they're just politically not very relevant. Philosophically very interesting. And, and often a very erudite and principled bunch. I'm speaking in general terms here. But, you know, you come across a lot of libertarians who are just like, yeah, man, like, let's just like legalize marijuana and just like let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> you know, it doesn't really, doesn't really work that way. Not really how it goes. Uh, we have two political parties that I think still stand for very different things. At least, op- at least on paper, uh, you do find that Republicans are co-opted much more than they should be on on important issues. And no party right now is the party of fiscal restraint. That doesn't exist. I know we're told that the uh, tax cuts are going to. Help because of growth will help us pay down the deficit, but I don't think so. They always say, "Oh, well, Reagan raised the or lowered the marginal top marginal rate from like seventy eight percent to twenty five percent." Yeah, we're not doing that. <laughs> we're cutting the corporate tax rate from thirty five percent to twenty five or twenty percent. That's that's not the same thing. Um, so, and if it were enough, if it were enough to just say that cuts equal growth equals paying down the debt, well, then we should slash individual rates to fifteen percent across the board. 
But that won't happen either. Why is that? There are some inconsistencies here on the right about what will happen as a result of the tax cuts. But I'm getting I'm, I'm losing the plot here for a moment, which is that I am troubled by this surge in support for socialism. This is across all 50 states. This is across all demographics. It is an age based phenomenon right now. And we are not sure that as everyone gets older and pays taxes, it will change. Because, for example, according to this study in the Wall Street Journal, the most left-wing millennials are the oldest, meaning people in their early 30s. They're the most left-wing. Now, that may be, co- that may be because, uh, well, this is a whole, you know, a whole long discussion we could, we could get into. But, you know, it's very tough to get into the housing market if you are a millennial. Um, There are some structural parts of the economy that, let's just say, benefit the generations above the millennials that are not benefiting millennials in quite the same way. The homeownership society is not something that the millennials partake in, which also means you cannot use your home as an ATM machine to pay bills or to give you uh, liquidity when you need it, to give you cash on hand when you need it, and the idea that your house will will rise in value over time. So I think there's some bitterness in millennials right now about their place in the American economic spectrum. And that leads them to say, you know what, if we're going to be 20 trillion in debt, why not be 30 trillion or 40 trillion in debt, but at least have free college? You know what, if we're going to be paying for the health care of future generations, which millennials are doing right now, and Obamacare is, uh, the foundation of Obamacare is younger and healthier, paying for older and sicker, if that's going to happen... You can start to see how it's not irrational. I think it's wrong, but not irrational for millennials to think to themselves, you know what? Maybe it would be a good thing to put a Bernie Sanders in in office and and have the Bernie Sanders left run the country because they will wipe away these student, this trillion dollar student loan debt bubble that's out there. They will engage in all kinds of redistribution through political fiat. That will benefit them. So this it's troubling. It's troubling. And you see that we are, we are really the outlier here in the world with the way that we view our economy and, and the free market. And if we go down the path of Democrat socialism, quasi-socialism, whatever it is, it's going to have a ripple effect across the rest of the world, too. And not a good one, because you cannot separate economic freedom from political freedom. And the more the state has control of our economic activities, the more we know they will have control of everything else as well. Uh, So anyway, socialism, bad. Capitalism, good. Millennials, get it together. All right. This is from from one millennial to all the rest of you out there. You got to put down the iPhone and, and read some books by Hayek, darn it. We'll be right back. News out of Russia. Get ready for this, everybody. This will blow you away. Vladimir Putin will be running again. It's, I know, it's a big surprise. Also, uh, spoiler alert, he will win the presidency of Russia. Uh, so this is... Uh, oh, there we go, yes. that's This is my jam. Play it loud. I love it. Oh, yes. It's like I'm back in the submarine with Sean Connery, about to fire off a bunch of nukes. Why? Because somebody look at me funny. Putin doesn't play games, my friends. He's running again. Oh, there you have it. Yes, he'll be next president of Russia. On a sad, on a sad note for Russia, 
no no Olympic love for the Russian national team. Tyrone, what's going on here? Well, uh, the Russians were particularly bad. This is unprecedented. They're not allowed to show up to the Olympics. Now, there's been different times where countries have boycotted the Olympics. They told them, no, no, South Korea, Winter Olympics, uh, don't come. Because they were running a state-run doping campaign. So they were, the government was, were doping the athletes, and they were failing drug tests all over the place. Like, I mean, in every sport, whether, whether it be tennis, Maria Sharapova, the most famous one, she got caught up in this. She's already served her suspension. And it's just, it's just unbelievable that what they're doing. This is never, this goes back to that East German. I was going to say, this is like the old school East German stuff where they have, you know, w- women in the swimming races who are like 6'3, weigh 250, and, you know, can bench 400. You're like, I think something's up here. But I think Natalia is doing more than just eating her Wheaties. At least there wasn't really drug testing then. There's drug testing now, and Russia did it anyway. So I assume that they're trying to get sneaky with what kind, because some drugs, right, this is this was the thing with the major league, it's like some drugs, they come up with new stuff, they can't catch what the drugs are, and so you have a state-run doping program, the Russians are pretty good with the, uh, the what, running the chemistry labs. What, what caught them and what caught the uh, girl who lived in Florida since she was 10 years old but acts like she's Russian, Maria Sharapova, what, what caught her was, all of a sudden she's like, why are all these Russians all have thyroid problems. These top-of-the-line athletes, they were all taking a thyroid medication. Well, why? They're, they're all, all 300 of them? Yeah, because it was a performance-enhancing. So what they did was they passed the drug test. When they written the blood work, they were like, that's strange. Yeah. They all have a problem? And then, then she says, oh, I've been taking it for 20, for the last 10 years for my bad thyroid. Yeah, you're a world-class I thought, it was, I thought she had like a heart issue. It was a thyroid issue? Thyroid and it was a thyroid issue, and then she changed it to heart issue later on. Ah. But all every Russian athlete for two years all had the same thyroid issue. I also, since since we're talking sports, I see that your uh, your favorite professional sports league commissioner is uh, not going to be in the poorhouse anytime soon. Unbelievable! Five years, two hundred million dollars. Um, rumors that he actually got the private jet for life, as if because he, he can't afford to fly on his own. And right now, that means his salary is 100 times more than the league minimum. And his money's guaranteed. His, and his yeah, he's sa- not going to get hurt. He's not going to get a high <laughs> tackle on that. No. <laughs> or get, you know, CTE. Or he's now 10 times the average salary. And his is guaranteed. The player's is not. That's where we're at. Oh, my. My, oh, my. It's, hey, it's good to be Goodell. What can I say? That guy's got a pri- I like that private jet for life. Just because. Um, All right, I'm going to have an update for you all on the aftermath of the Kate Steinle case. There is more there. We'll get into that coming up. And also, any of your calls, if you want to ring us, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Quick break. We'll be back. Welcome back, team. Buck Sexton here with you. Thank you for staying with me. Thank you for joining. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. I want to get into a couple of stories Uh, out of California, uh, national level stories we'll get into in just a moment. But first, I just, interesting, I caught something on the screen before we came back from the break, and it was on uh, Tucker Carlson's show on Fox. And he said that if there's anyone on Capitol Hill, any staffer who has suffered any kind of abuse, not just sexual harassment, he wants them to come forward and... Uh, he, he to his staff, and I, I, I assume he wants the, their story to be told. And then he mentioned something about how 
just because someone's a feminist doesn't mean that they can throw a stapler at your head. Now, maybe he was just going for rhetorical flourish there, but I, I, I think he, I, look, Tucker's been in D.C. a long time. I'm, just, I'm reading between the lines here. I may, I may be way off. I think Tucker knows that there's some other stuff, you know, has heard of, I should say, other bad stuff going on on Capitol Hill, uh, maybe involving a prominent Democrat, maybe involving a prominent female Democrat when it comes to abusing staff. And he's he's inviting. That's what it seemed to me. Again, I'm, I may be. I may be uh, either overstating or misreading the situation. I just it was just a quick clip that I saw a uh, quick cut of the show before I came back from break. Cause I have in here, I've got, uh, you know, I've got the Fox news screen. I've got the CNN screen going so I can just check in and see what's happening. It's always fun to try to follow the story just based on what's at the bottom of the screen. The, the, uh, Chiron as, as they call it. But that's another component of this that may begin to come out. The, the abuse of staff by people in power. Um, here's what I'll say about it. Some of these sexual harassment stories that have come out, I and I'm not somebody who is, especially when I was hearing these things, well-connected in the media circles that would have known this. But I, I knew that Matt Lauer, it had gotten to me from other people in the business that Matt Lauer was uh, scummy. And and that was known, right? I've also heard stories of horrid conduct, a, a, a horrid conduct involving uh, people in the media and also abusive conduct from those who are in positions of power in D.C. and on Capitol Hill as well. Now, it's in the realm of, and I'm talking about the D.C. stuff, it's really in the realm of rumor, you know, and nothing I've seen. But when I worked in the government, I knew there were some there were some officials that had reputations. And I'm not talking about it like I don't want people to start coming forward and say somebody was mean to me, you know. That no, no, no. Right. Very we need to make sure there's a level of severity here for this to, for these things to become a story. Right? Somebody threatening your job if you won't engage in uh, a sex act with them is a very, very serious thing and and deeply wrong. Somebody who, you know, curses at you and they're having a bad day, they shouldn't do that, but not not a national news story, but physical abuse to staff, throwing things, maybe even hitting people on the staff with objects. I've heard stuff. I have heard stuff. And I, I'm just wondering if that may, I've been wondering if at some point that would come out. And some of these very prominent uh, executives and celebrated media personalities have reputations for just being vicious to be around. And again, I don't just mean vicious as in like saying mean things. I mean, your physical safety could be in jeopardy. I, I just wonder if any of that will come out. I, I'm thinking it is it is possible. But all right, that's just a that's an aside. Let's get into these stories from California. First, just the the raging wildfires that are going on right now in the Los Angeles area. Uh, thoughts and prayers to everybody who lives out there. I saw these photos of one wildfire in particular that was out on the uh, Sep- uh, Sepulveda Pass, or Sepulveda, I think I see, yeah, thank you, sorry. And uh, Amy's like, yeah, Buck, come on, you've been to L.A. a bunch of times. Uh, Sepulveda Pass area of Los Angeles, and although people come to New York and they say Houston Street, and I just want to be like, oh, no, oh, no, no, it is, in fact, Houston Street here in New York City, even though it's spelled Houston. Uh, but so, uh, anyway, there was, there was this dramatic 
photograph out in the Sepulveda Pass area of, of a wildfire. Now, I think it's just been property destruction, which is scary and bad enough, but no injury so far from this fire. Uh, but it just goes to show you, you know, no, no matter where you are in the country, you've got stuff can just happen, man. You know, stuff. I, like I was down in, in uh, New Orleans, as you know, the, the last uh, for the last weekend and on Friday and Monday and can't I, people are getting tired of me talking about how much I love it, how nice the people are, how great the food is. But I just think New Orleans is a phenomenal place. Miss Molly is already talking about how she, she's like, I just want to move there. I'm like, oh, OK, we need to we need to talk about that. But not, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I just. It's sudden, uh, but I think it's it's great down there. Um, but obviously, New Orleans, just in day to day conversation about what's going on there, about, about different areas, and people say, "Oh, you know, from from when Katrina hit." I mean, oh, from when we were still recovering from flooding. Oh, you know, this restaurant. I went to a great little brunch place, and they said, and I was talking to one of the uh, managers or one of the owners. Uh, it was a little kind of hole in the wall place with incredible food, and they said that uh you know they were just getting going and then they got hit with the hurricane and it knocked out their you know their business was was out for months and anyway so wherever you are in the country you've got your stuff right there's things you got to deal with but in California these wildfires are i mean it looks like something out of biblical prophecy it's it's really uh it's terrifying and i just hope that everyone's okay out there i know they've been shutting down production on some big tv shows and there's been some property destruction and um I don't have much analysis to offer other than just noting that, you know, we, uh, we're thinking about you folks out there in California and we, uh, we hope you're all okay. And, and certainly waiting for the, the fire to fire fighting authorities to get this thing under control as much as they can. I did think it was very interesting when we had on some of the, uh, some of the experts in the past on this show who specialize in fighting, um, wildfires like this. I didn't realize how fast these things can move and how dangerous they are. And that reminds me, I really do want to go see the uh, that movie about the Granite Mountain hotshots. Uh, we had on a Granite Mountain hotshot on the show, but I, I um, or, or somebody, sorry, pardon me, somebody who spoke about that that case, that story. Uh, but I would like to probably go check out that movie. Anyway, so the wildfires, we're keeping an eye on it and hope everybody out there is okay. Other story out of California that got my attention has to do with the aftermath of the Kate Steinle case, as you know, uh, or uh, in case you don't, just as review. They didn't find the immigrant, uh, illegal immigrant, um, pardon me, the illegal alien. See, it happens. Jose Inez Garcia Zarate. They acquitted him of all of the state murder and involuntary manslaughter charges. I've heard the explanations for how that happened or how it's possible, and I, that jury is just, they have been culturally brainwashed to feel a, a special sympathy and, and really think that illegal immigrants are, are, or illegal aliens, are owed special treatment, treatment that is better than what citizens would get. I should note that this happens in a whole variety of places uh, when it comes to document fraud when it comes to social security fraud these are a lot of crimes that illegal aliens commit on a regular basis as part of their illegal status right this is they want to work so they'll forge things they'll they won't pay taxes on things although a lot of them wouldn't probably qualify for federal income tax uh, but they they still should file and they don't and well i guess they can file because they're not supposed to be here 
the point is that we excuse all that because we say, see, they're illegal aliens. You know, it's but that means that they have an extra legal protection that the rest of us don't. You know, if they commit document fraud, but it's because they're illegal, that's OK. But that's not OK. And I think that mentality had at least some effect on the jury in the Kate Steinle case, which was I, I think they overcharged. I will not I will not but, uh, beat around the bush on that. I, I think that they by going for uh, did they go for murder two or murder? I think they went for murder one, actually, if memory serves. Um, but they definitely went for a a, a, uh, a murder charge when a manslaughter charge based on the facts, as I read them, would have been a more apt, uh, more accurate reading of of the case. Um, But the district attorney went for murder as well as manslaughter. And the fact that manslaughter was not what that jury found is is unfathomable. It really is. And very disturbing. But I think it is a manifestation of what I was telling you about before, which is that you get a bunch of people in San Francisco. They got an illegal alien. They feel sympathy for the illegal alien. Usually you'd think in a in a case like this where a, a a lovely young woman was murdered in her father's arms the entire sympathy of the jury would immediately be with the deceased and want to bring justice to her family but in this case it seems like they're like oh no we also feel we feel badly for Kate Steinley's family the jury must have thought but we also feel badly for Jose Zarate the uh illegal alien who had been deported what Five or six times. Anyway, the the update on this is that now he does face federal charges. Um, He was charged with one count of a felon in possession of a firearm and one count of an immigrant in possession of a firearm. Those are both offenses under federal law. So an immigrant is not allowed to be here with is not allowed to have a have a gun here and. Certainly a, a felon is not allowed to have a firearm. Those are uh, those are charges that could carry, I think, up to three years in prison. They're going to deport him at the end of at the end of uh, his sentence regardless. But I don't think that uh, I don't think there's anything you can take away from the way this case was handled other than it was either botched by the D.A. or that the. Jury in this case is just part of the brainwashed liberal San Francisco left and would not come to the obvious conclusion that this was a case of involuntary manslaughter. They're saying that the gun fired because they, the, the trigger can allow for an, what would we, we'd call a accidental discharge, right? But that doesn't, that's the whole, that's the reason involuntary manslaughter exists. Whether he wanted to pull the trigger because he thought he was going to make a you know a bang noise and shoot in the air, or he just pulled the trigger because he wasn't paying attention, he was responsible for the death of that young woman. There's no question about that. So how they didn't fight, honestly, it just gets me angry. But that the federal, uh, that the you know federal uh, courts will now be handling this at some level, maybe a, a measure of a small measure of justice here, but not enough. This was a. This was a failure of the system. And above all, or apart from that, but certainly a a part of this case, is that San Francisco failed Kate Steinle. The uh, police and the local local politicians with their sanctuary city policies, or at least the police brass that that makes these decisions, 
They failed Kate Steinle. They failed their family. And, and with all that, they failed the American people, too. So I'm really hoping the Trump administration delivers on its immigration promises, on enforcement, on a wall, on putting into effect a, an immigration policy that is based on respect for the rule of law and for merit. Yeah. We will see what they're able to get done. I, I'm hoping that 2018 is, is when it happens because uh, time for all that is going to be running short. The moment you get Democrats, Democrats are wedded to a de facto open border status at this point. They won't say it, but that's the truth. All right, we're going to run into a break here. Uh, We'll be back in just a few. Stay with me. In case you didn't know, they tried to impeach Trump earlier today. That's right. The House had a go at it, tried to impeach, well, Democrats, a few few dozen of them. Got a couple of thoughts on this one. First of all, 58 Democrats supported the bid to consider impeachment over the objections of House Democratic leaders, because probably House Democratic leaders are like, don't be idiots. This does not this does not make us look serious. It makes us look like petulant children, which is why the Democrats in Congress are anyway. But the motion uh, to sideline the measure was approved 364 to 58 with four Democrats voting present. <laughs> who are the Democrats who vote present on this? They're like they're you know, they're, they're keeping their keeping their powder dry for the next political effort on this. Like what? It's crazy. Yeah, well, I don't want to take a tough vote on that one. I'm just going to let it, you know, I'm just going to sit on the sidelines on this one. This is crazy. <laughs> Whatever, Democrat. I mean, Congress. Oh, gosh. It's such a clown show. You know, sometimes when I come home and I'm like, Miss Molly, are we really watching, uh, are we really watching like the Real Housewives of uh, Uzbekistan or whatever? And she's just like, you know, you talk about those people in Congress all day. They're a bunch of, they're a bunch of jerks. And I'm like, you know what? You're right a lot of the time. That's, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. You know, maybe the Kardashians are more entertaining than watching C-SPAN. But nonetheless, this article of impeachment, is, it's not going anywhere right now. But it is worth noting that 58 Democrats would even would, would go that route. I guess they figure it's good for their, uh, good for their own fundraising purposes. Get, yeah, they go on record. You know, we're, we're hashtag resistance. And I saw there was a... a a collection of the biggest tweets in terms of I'm sorry the biggest hashtags on Twitter which is already a left dominated medium but it was uh, number one was resist hashtag resist so the resistance although number two was MAGA so there's that make America great again but number three was impeach Trump and then you also had not my president black lives matter take a knee those were the those are the biggest Hashtags of 2017. So for a lot of politicians, anti-Trump anything is a very, uh, very lucrative in every sense position to take. But it's just nonsense. I mean, by the way, they when they had to. Well, this one guy, what's his name? Uh, Congressman Green, I think, was leading this effort. He cited this is for the impeachment. They, They want to remove the president because of the following. Uh, Trump's remarks in the aftermath of a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, his attacks on Frederica Wilson, and his repeated criticism of NFL players. I mean, at least if you're going to be a wacko Democrat, at least go for the Russia collusion stuff, right? At least tell crazy stories about subverting the election and, you know, the 
working with the FSB and and WikiLeaks and all that stuff, right? At least make it interesting. At least put some spice in there. You're going to say that you want to boycott Trump because he says mean things. I'm sorry, not boycott Trump, although they want to do that too. You want to impeach Trump because he says mean things about NFL players? Really? First of all, I think a, a, a strong majority of the American people are on Trump's side with that whole NFL kneeling thing. We've already figured that out. And that's why the kneeling is, as I've been discussing here on the show with Tyrone, who is uh, an expert in sports and the crossover between sports and politics, uh, that, that's, this petered out pretty quickly. And it wasn't that big to begin with. It got bigger when Trump mentioned it, but still a, a big majority of Americans are uh, opposed to the kneeling. But then the the comments after the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville you're going to impeach. You're going to try to get an impeachment. Look, I, I, they know that this is this is the equivalent. I'm going to say it. It's kind of the equivalent of some GOP members when they were in the minority voting to repeal and replace Obamacare. It's just for show. It's just theater. Yeah, I know it stings, right? It, it's kind of makes me sad on the inside that Republicans were such a bunch of uh, phonies. So many of them were such phonies on that issue. Dozens and dozens of votes. You know, we will repeal and replace Obamacare until we have the majority. And then it'll be like, whoa, whoa. Kind of like this whole staying on my parents' insurance on 26 thing, you know? But these articles of impeachment today, the dozens of Democrats who went with it, it's, it's not going anywhere. But it's just indicative of how unserious so many Democrats are just as a as a matter of course. Never mind the specifics of the Russia-Trump collusion investigation. They're just not serious people um, and will engage in a stunt. They will waste the time of the Congress and therefore the, they will waste money of taxpayers pushing for votes on impeachment that will never happen, will never go anywhere. But it's the easiest thing in the world now to be a Democrat who just wraps himself in the self-righteousness of hashtag resistance. So there you go. It, it was it was a pretty lame vote today, but they took it nonetheless. Uh, there's some new reporting about General Flynn that I will address on the other side of this break. They're saying that he had a financial incentive, maybe, to push for Russia ties. We'll get into that. And then some Team Buck speaks. Quick break. Stay with me. They say they've got a whistleblower now that is coming forward with information about General Flynn. I... I will assume for the purposes of our discussion right now that this is accurate information, just so that I can talk to you about it a little bit. I, I didn't want to spend uh, too much time on this because it's not one. This to me seems like it is uh, vague and somewhat thinly sourced. But here's what we've got. The New York Times, the Mueller probe, they've got to get stuff going again. It's been a really bad week for the Mueller probe, despite the fact that they got a uh, a plea deal from General Flynn online to the FBI. The politicization from Strzok, and I should know that's the way I've been saying Sturzok. Apologies for that, everybody. It's Strzok, I believe. Uh, S-T-R-Z-O-K, that guy, the FBI guy. Yeah, anyway, I'm just, who knew, right? Some of those, there's some names that I'm pretty good with, but I didn't know with this guy's name. Uh, The clear political machinations of some of these senior FBI figures on Hillary Clinton's behalf, on the behalf of anybody on Hillary's team, uh, Huma Abedin, Cheryl Mills, versus 
the ferocity with which he went after Trump and anybody associated with Trump, that, that has called into question this entire venture. And I shouldn't even say that. It, it really has reminded us all that this is a partisan witch hunt and has been from the get-go. But here's what the Times is reporting. Just so I can cover it as we go, here is what the Times is reporting on Michael Flynn. They say that his former national security advisor, quote, told a former business associate that economic sanctions against Russia would be ripped up as one of the Trump administration's first acts, according to an account by a whistleblower made public on Wednesday. Mr. Flynn believed that ending the sanctions could allow a business project he had once participated in to move forward, according to the whistleblower. The account is the strongest evidence to date that the Trump administration wanted to end the sanctions immediately and suggests that Mr. Flynn had a plausible economic incentive for the United States to forge a closer relationship with Russia. All right, a few things on this. First of all, that President Obama, on his way out, slapped Russia with a bunch of sanctions for its uh, meddling in the election, and that the new administration did not want to be saddled with Obama's decision-making is not surprising at all. What's, how, how is that supposed to turn out, by the way? When do those sanctions go away? You know, the purpose of sanctions is actually to get a change in behavior. It's not just punishment for punishment's sake. Right? We, we, we don't because then you ask the question, well, when does it stop? When would sanctions go away? If it's just because a regime acted badly, is it like a prison sentence? Sanctions for five years, for 10 years? No. Sanctions are imposed as a tool of, well, kind of hard diplomacy, hard power diplomacy or hard line diplomacy, but to get a change in behavior. What, what was Trump going to say? What was his national security team going to tell Putin once they had come into office? Uh, sorry, but we're just not going to talk to you anymore because you had Russian hackers get into Podesta's email account and put some embarrassing stuff out there. This is not the way it's going to go. I'm, I'm sorry. I just don't. I don't understand what the expectation is. And this is like when whenever there's reporting on Putin meeting with Trump, like, oh, they're so friendly and they had a meeting that didn't wasn't on camera. Yeah. What do they want him to do? They want him to challenge Putin to a wrestling match. They, they want the commander in chief to uh, grievously and personally insult a another head of state that still has a very large nuclear arsenal, I should note, and can cause a lot of problems for us even without resorting to the unthinkable around the world, right? So they're just analyzing and discussing the Russia issue in bad faith all the time from the left. That's what's actually happening. But all right, so, so let's just assume for a second this is true. And Flint sent this text saying that this project would go forward because the sanctions would be ended. Unless Flynn had a, an economic incentive in that, I don't even see what the I don't even see what the big report is all about. Flynn's allowed to say, yeah, the sanctions are going away and this would be great because it would pave the way for a project like like this. Look, I'm not familiar with all the details. This is an early report, but uh, they're saying that Flynn had a possible you'll notice the, the, the usage of language here. 
leaves open that there was no economic incentive for Flynn. So what does that tell us? If Flynn was just working on something in the past, if this had to do with uh, with building nuclear power plants in in the Middle East, I'm assuming in countries that you know that where where a U.S. citizen could be involved in the process of trying to help get nuclear power plants built. But but if this is just Flynn happy that this is going to clear the way for a project he had worked on in the past, well, I'm not sure what they're trying to get at here because without an economic incentive that they can identify which they do not identify it just seems like he was you know he was uh sharing his thought and this is all assuming it's true the account is detailed in a letter this is where we get all this information at the times written by representative elijah cummings who is the top democrat on the house oversight committee And Cummings said that the whistleblower contacted his office in June and has authorized him to go public with the details. Why has this been withheld until now? Why are we just finding this out? You see, one of the common tactics uh, or one of the continued tactics that you will see when it comes to this whole issue of the Russia collusion narrative and, and Mueller and all this stuff is that information mysteriously appears when all of a sudden there's a bad news cycle for the Russia collusion storyline. All of a sudden, this whistleblower is willing to have his information shared. And by the way, has anyone else vetted this? And if we are to take seriously that Congress can do its oversight of Russian meddling in the election, what the heck do we need a special counsel for in the first place? Elijah Cummings, I should note, is a is an absolute partisan, and I've seen him in these oversight hearings, and there is just there there is nobody who is more dedicated to saying anything to help the Democrats and anything to hurt the Republicans in Congress than Elijah Cummings, from what I've seen. So, well, I'll keep an eye on this information, but once once again, this is just it's a story to keep this alive in the minds of the Democrats and of the left and and to take a little bit of the pressure off the senior FBI folks who are looking pretty bad this week, aren't they? All right, we'll be back with uh, some Team Buck Speaks and also a little story about a carpet shark. Stay with me. Before we close out the Freedom Hunt tonight with some Team Buck Speaks, I just wanted to share with you my most recent carpet shark experience. We should probably get some Jaws-like theme music for the carpet sharks, also known as dachshunds, for those of you who are among the uninitiated into this whole discussion. So I'm in the elevator on my way to, to come do the radio show here in New York City. I'm at my apartment building, and there's a woman, and she's in the elevator, and she's holding uh, holding a kind of across her, uh, her chest a, a dachshund. And I'm just looking at this guy, and, you know, it doesn't look like the friendliest fellow ever, but I'm just wondering, you know, why is she picking up the dog? Usually people just have it in the elevator and, you know, if it's if they want it to sit or stay away from you, especially a smaller dog, they just keep it on a relatively short leash. But she's got it. She's got it picked up. And I ask her because I'm curious because I want to know, is this is this in fact a carpet shark? I mean, is that what we're facing here? Is a little great white, a little tiger shark, if you will, with fur. And I said to her, uh, so is he? Is he friendly? And she went into the whole, 
well, and I just had to laugh because the moment somebody, when asked if a dog is friendly, if the answer is yes, the owner always wants to tell you right away, and there's there's no equivocation, right? I mean, a dog is either friendly or it's not. And I just thought she goes, well, you know, he doesn't he doesn't see that well, and he's low to the ground, and I'm like, oh, okay, I, I see what's I see what's going on here. So uh, you don't want little Fido the carpet shark to be in a position where we could test the thesis about whether or not he is in fact friendly. Because if there's any if there's any if ands or buts to the question, is your dog friendly? The the answer is really no. <laughs> but I, I can understand people are you know they're like proud parents and they don't want to have to tell people that sure enough uh, their 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 furry buddy is a, a hazard around uh, around people that it doesn't it doesn't know or maybe around a, a lot of people. I've never understood. Unless it's a rescue and you're just doing it out of the kindness of your heart, I've never understood how people end up having dogs that are uh, not, in fact, fun to be around for people. I, I don't unless it's a guard dog or something else. I'm just saying. Sure enough, in my building, first time this has happened. Lots of dogs in the elevators. Be everybody, it seems these days in New York City's got a dog, and it was a carpet shark. And I had a feeling. It turns out I was right because. That little dude is not exactly uh, about to be friends with me. So there's that. So I'm just saying, uh, you know, if, if if I'm wrong about dachshunds, let me know. But I, I wanted to tell you that uh, carpet shark sighted, and uh, and uh, I'll have to keep an eye on him. All right, now let's get into some of the latest with Team Buck Speaks. So we've got a, a note here from somebody identifying himself as... The uh, husband of Monica, so not Monica, but husband of Monica. I didn't. I don't think I have a name here, but here's what he writes. Uh, hey, Buck, I heard you say something the other day about us fixing Afghanistan. I know you were there. I spent three years straight there building new bases as a civil engineer, uh, working in Kunduz, Jabad, uh, Mazari Sharif, and others outside the wire and not being defended by the U.S. military. I dealt directly with village elders and Taliban warlords on a very regular basis. We will never fix that place, and I don't know of a solution. They turn on each other for sport as well as the USA. I was arrested in Herat for owning unlicensed body armor. That place just needs to go away. As always, shields high. Uh, well, uh, husband of Monica, thank you so much. And I unfortunately in, and completely agree with you here. I do not see how we are going to manage to fix Afghanistan. I do not see how that is going to be something that we do. All right, Duke writes in with the following. Hey, Buck, I'm so proud of you. I have watched you or listened, as it were, rise through the ranks. I predict you'll be the new voice of America. My point, I now use the phrase shields high as my salutation or as my complimentary close. It invokes a question which inevitably, inevitably, pardon me, leads to a discussion of your show. Gotta love it from Duke. Well, Duke, thank you so very much for that. I appreciate it. And yes, indeed, shields high. We got a lot of folks writing in uh, that are saying nice things about how much I liked New Orleans. So that's that's always good. Uh, we have, for example, uh, Catherine with the following. So happy you enjoyed the Pearl of the South. Nolens, 
I have found uh, many fond memories of that fine city. When you come to Nashville, let's get a freedom hunt together. Well, Catherine, that sounds like a great idea. Nashville, I will tell you, is in fact high on my list. I have even mentioned it as a place where I uh, may, with uh, of course approval of uh, Miss Molly, I may go on a visit in the relatively near future. I have never been and very much want to go. So uh, there is that. Let's now take, and I'm pulling these as we go, which is always fun, as you can imagine. Uh, Jeremy writes in with the following, hey, but a couple things. I was listening to your piece about how we feel compelled to visit museums and wanted to share my story. While in the Navy, I had the opportunity to visit Paris. At the time, I had a herniated disc in my back, but we walked all the way across Paris to see the Louvre. When we got there, we saw a sign that said the Louvre will be closed on Tuesday. Guess what day it was? I'm not even a fan of art. Second, concerning the tax... <laughs> That's just kind of a random anecdote, but hey, I hear you. Concerning the uh, the tax bill uh, and the lost revenue versus deficit argument used by many liberals, isn't it entirely possible to manage our spending and the deficit and at the same time cut taxes? This seems like a foreign concept to many. Keep up the good fight out there. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much. And yeah, we'll see what ends up happening with the uh, with the taxes. I, I think there is a distinct possibility that, uh, sure enough, this will be a great thing for the economy and it'll we'll all be bathing in liberal tears because Trump is going to get reelected. That's that's the that's the upside. That is possible here. I'm, I'm hoping. All right. Cody writes in, hi, Buck. It's uh, been a couple of years since I shared with you about Wyatt. We moved locations and had Wyatt in a private school last year where we had an amazing teacher uh, and he started playing baseball, football, and basketball. This year we moved him to public school and last Friday he became student of the month. The letter that was written made my heart burst. He has tried so hard and come so far, but ultimately all that matters is that he is humble, kind, and doesn't fall into the typical 13-year-old boy rut. He also received an award for perfect attendance and never being tardy. Uh, If he continues down this road and doesn't have any tardies, he will be the first student in five years to do that. Well, Cody, um, that is great. And uh, I know that uh, this is a one of the people who has reached one of the parents who's reached out to me in the past. You need to know the backstory here uh, because I've spoken about how I had those you don't know. And this year, probably on my birthday, I will. And I just want to say congratulations to uh, to Cody. I'm glad it's all going so well. But I had some uh, difficulties early on in school. I, in fact, had a and this is from a radio host. I had a speech impediment. I'll tell you a bit about what that was like growing up and also was considered a class clown and refused to pay attention and was falling behind in my uh, Catholic school here in the city to the degree that they weren't sure I was going to be able to stay. And the longer story, which I don't really have the time to get into now, is that because I have an incredible mom and she never gave up on me and she insisted that if I just had uh, attention and encouragement, I would figure out what I need to figure out. I think by the, well, by the fifth or sixth grade, I was the number one student in the class and ended up getting a full ride to go to a free or a full ride to go to a private high school here in New York City for free. Uh, and so it went from you 
can't even be a normal school. And you have, by the way, an enormous, and I mean medically speaking, an enormous head as a baby. Uh, and then had a, had a speech impediment and also had learning disabilities to, or we weren't sure what the disabilities really were. I just wasn't doing well and wasn't paying attention uh, to the top student in my class who got the equivalent of a $100,000 scholarship when he was 14. So, you know, stay with it. Never, ever, ever give up. Heed the words of Churchill on that when it comes to your kids, to their learning, to their character, and to everything else. And I'm so glad that Cody is doing well. I'll give you more details on those stories probably closer to my birthday, my own trials and tribulations. Thanks, as always, for joining me here in the Hut team. Until tomorrow night, no matter what comes your way, Shields High.